You're listening to the Truth and Boots podcast. Join me as we search the Bible for truth about our God, for hope to encourage us through hard trials and struggles, and for answers for anyone who questions our faith. The truth of God's Word is not fragile, impractical, and only used on special occasions like a pair of stiletto heels. God's Word, like a pair of sturdy boots, is meant to be put to work daily and is designed to protect us and help us through the mud, streams, and rocks of life. Hey guys, welcome back to the Truth and Boots podcast. I am excited to introduce a new series that we're doing this January. It's on typical New Year's resolutions that people make. I know if you're one of those people that make resolutions, but I have on and off in the past, but inevitably I always break them. Um, so this series is going to be kicked off by today's episode on habits. In 2020, I read the best-selling book, Atomic Habits by James Clear, which is definitely on my gotta-read list for the year. Um, And as I read through the book, (laughs) I just kept getting giddier and giddier as I was discovering the biblical principles that were the foundations for what this guy was teaching. So today, I'd like to discuss habits from a biblical point of view, but we'll be talking through the principles James Clear teaches in in Atomic Habits, and I'll be linking them to those biblical principles that he's unconsciously teaching. So I'd like to start by starting where the book did, in the most unexpected place for a secular point of view. He started with the fact that you need to make, that to make a new habit, you should first start by adopting a new identity. On page 32 of the book, he says, most people don't even consider identity change when they set out to improve. They just think, I want to be skinny, which is an outcome. And if I stick to this diet, then I'll be skinny, which is a process. They set goals and determine the actions they should take to achieve those goals without considering the beliefs that drive their actions. They never shift the way they look at themselves, and they don't realize that their old identity can sabotage the new plans for change, end quote. So I thought this was <laughs> a such a fundamental perspective to have a change from a Christian's perspective, but revolutionary for the secular point of view. And he illustrated all of this by giving the example of someone choosing not to smoke. He said that if you identify as a smoker, then you say you are trying to quit smoking. But if someone chooses not to smoke a cigarette because they are a non-smoker, it is completely different. If a former smoker suddenly decides, okay, I don't want to be a smoker anymore, so I'm going to call myself a non-smoker, that is a more powerful motivation for him not to take a cigarette. Um, Or what about attempting to stop binging on Netflix because you know you should not be watching that much TV or adopting the new identity of being a reader instead. So this is drawing upon the biblical principle that when you are saved from your sin, when you accept Christ as your Savior, 
you become a new person. You have a new identity. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 says, but that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 1 Peter 1.3 explains this more. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So just like Nicodemus was wondering how in the world can you be born again, Christ, Jesus explains that you are new, you are have a new identity, you have a new life when you become a child of God. And likewise, that new identity has so many implications to you being free from sin, from sin habits, from your old way of life. And that is truly the foundation to changing anything about yourself. James Clear summarizes this point on page 34. He says, true behavior change is identity change. You might start a habit because of motivation, but the only reason you'll stick with one is that it becomes part of your identity, end quote. In the context of sinful habits and our Christian life, I have a whole series that I did last fall. So go check out episodes 33 through 36 if you're wanting some more biblical input on how to kick a sinful habit. But more practically speaking, after reading this chapter he wrote, I realized that it's the identity aspect as to why I could not stick with the exercise habit of running. Because I never considered myself a runner. I ran, but I hated it. I did not like it. I I told everyone, yeah, I run, but I'm not a runner. So that is why I could never consistently stick with running. I try it, you know, every few months, come back to it because I'm trying to be supportive of my husband who liked to run at the time. So now, because I want to be a more active person. I'm trying to adopt the mindset, the identity change that I am an active person instead of a sedentary person. And that type of person would take the stairs, take short walks throughout the day, do a quick workout in the morning. I am not a fitness nut by any means. I don't choose that identity. So you won't find me working out for an hour, three days a week. But I'm slowly trying to shift my mindset to the identity of being an active person. And it is a process. Change is a process. James Clear says this about that on page 38. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. No single instance will transform your beliefs. But as the votes build up, so does the evidence of your new identity. End quote. 2 Peter 3.18 says this, But grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Changing your identity is a process. It's called sanctification. That's the biblical term. Changing your identity from your old way of life to being a child of God and 
free from everything that was associated with your old life, that sanctification. And so to any habit you want to change in your practical life is a process. So maybe take a moment here to consider what identities do you need to drop in order to adopt this habit that you're wanting to implement? What do you need to add as part of your identity in order to make this habit? So that was the first point that I just was kind of floored that James actually brought up. And the second one that I thought was really interesting was it's the 1% change that will lead to transformation. He says on page 15, it is so easy to overestimate the importance of one defining moment and underestimate the value of making small improvements on a daily basis. Too often we convince ourselves that massive success requires massive action. Meanwhile, improving by 1% isn't particularly notable. Sometimes it isn't even noticeable, but it can be far more meaningful, especially in the long one. End quotes. He gave the example of a 3.5 degree difference in a flight from L.A. So if you take off from L.A. on a plane and instead of heading to New York City, they adjust the compass heading by just 3.5 degrees and you'll end up in Washington, D.C. instead. Such a small difference on the compass, which is a 1% change, will put you in a hugely different location on the globe. I thought of another illustration on the power of small efforts every single day. When I was a kid, we lived in a house that had a wood stove to heat it in the winter. It was in Oregon, so we didn't get that cold down in the valleys, but it was still cold. And the only source of heat in the house, other than some baseboard heating in the back, was the wood stove in the center of the living room. So every fall, a giant dump truck load of firewood would get dumped onto our driveway. And our job as kids would be to move a little bit of that wood every single day. Now, if you've ever seen a dump truck load of dirt or mulch or anything, you know how big it is. So it is hundreds and hundreds of pieces of firewood that got dumped. But my mom said that we just had to move the number of pieces of wood that we, how old we were each day. So if I was 10, I had to move 10 pieces of wood and stack them in the barn. Um, and then my brother would do his 12 pieces of wood and stack them in the barn. My sister would do her eight. And that's all we had to do. So if you do the math, that's 30 pieces of wood we moved as kids every single day. It didn't look like a whole lot of dent in that giant pile, but we did it every single day and it was daunting however when we got towards the last couple hundred pieces of the piles the pile might be 10 feet tall to begin with and you know 20 feet wide or something like that but when we got down to maybe a couple giant wheelbarrow loads we suddenly had motivation to finish it quickly so we combined our efforts and got the last chunk of the pile done in one day. But that would not have happened at all if we kept procrastinating and, 
and didn't do anything because the job was just so big. And this is a very biblical principle. Proverbs 6, 6 through 11 says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When, when will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The Bible frequently teaches that faithfulness is important not only to our God, but to the task that he's assigned to us. The Proverbs show that the consistency and faithfulness of a farmer throughout the year is what allows him or the ant to get that big harvest. Because a farmer does a lot of 1% work every day. You don't see a giant progress check of, okay, now the wheat has grown to a foot today. No, at first you don't see anything because the roots are all growing underneath the ground and then you have little seedlings pop up. And very slowly throughout several months, that wheat, that whatever that harvest is, it grows and he has to tend it, weed it, fertilize it, water it keep pests and crows and other stuff from getting his food. And it's the tending of that wheat every single day that brings the harvest at the appropriate time. If the farmer skips a day or two of work here and there, it won't ruin the harvest. He can have his breaks. But if he neglects to care for his crops half the time, then he won't have a harvest because everything will be dead. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. It is the diligent person who keeps going steadily each day to reach her goal that gets her results. But if you expect immediate results, if you're hasty, you're trying to work like I need the results now, you won't get to your goal. You'll get burnt out. So I thought that was also another interesting point. 1% change, the little bit every day, is what leads to transformation. The third point that I wanted to bring up was his teaching that you need to have a clear process and not just a goal. On page 23, he says, goals are the results you want to achieve. Systems are about the processes that lead to those results. Page 24, he says, if you completely ignored your goals and focused only on your system, would you still succeed? For example, if you were a basketball coach and you ignored your goal to win a championship and focused only on what your team does at practice each day, would you still get results? I think you would. The goal in any sport is to finish with the best score, but it it would be ridiculous to spend the whole game staring at the scoreboard. The only way to actually win is to get better each day, end quote. So making a commitment will get you nowhere. Yes, I just said that. Making a commitment will get you nowhere. You need a plan on how you'll keep that commitment. And this goes back to the verse I just quoted, Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. You need to have a plan in the first place. If you start out trying to accomplish a goal but have no direction on how that's going to happen, it, it won't happen. 
You can see this in the book of Exodus. God tells Moses, build me a tabernacle, but he doesn't stop there. Moses is not expected to come up with the intricate and beautiful structure and workings and processes and offerings and decor of the tabernacle all by himself or shooting from the hip. No, God gave very specific details on the people that would be involved in building this tabernacle what things are to be made of, the exact dimensions of each item. So go see the last half of the Exodus for God's complete written plan on how to build him this house. And I think it's obvious to us that God operates from a plan. The Bible frequently uh, references his plans for us. He's not shooting from a hip of, oh, now Kathleen did this, which ruins my plans down the road for this. So I guess I have to change this now so that my plans can be still fulfilled. No, his plan was perfect from the beginning. And he is working all things to accomplish that purpose, that plan. He has a goal, bringing us into fellowship with him forevermore. And everything that happens each day in this world It's going to help further that plan and accomplishes that plan. So on a more practical note, I personally wanted to have a goal this last year of having more dates with my husband. So we both talked about that. Yes, it's something good, but it never happened. I mean, we have a toddler now and we both have work and all the other stuff. And of course, there was COVID too, so we'll ignore that. But... We could still have at-home dates. We could still, you know, do the at-home couple night. But it just wasn't happening. What we needed to do instead was do what we're doing now. Every Sunday morning, after he's done with devotions and before I even emerge from the bedroom, um, Tim looks at my list of, okay, here are all the ideas that I have that we could do for dates, places we could go, things we could do at home. And he looks at that list and picks something, picks a day and says, hey, do you want to do this with me this week or this month? So it may be a family date he wants to do that week. It could be a at-home couple thing he wants to do that week. But he has this definite plan and a reminder set on his phone that he will do that and remember to discuss it with me so that we can set definite details. So to apply this principle to a resolution that many Christians do at this time of year, I want to have more consistent devotions. That is a great goal, but that won't happen until you have a very specific plan on location and time and process. So if you want to have the goal of having more consistent devotions, first choose what you're going to do. Maybe it is reading through one chapter of the Bible every single day. And you'll start with Matthew and read through Revelation. So you're just going to try to do the New Testament. That is your goal. And you want to do this every single day. So you have your plan of what you're going to do. Now you need to choose a time and location. So for me, that would be my bedroom before my kid gets up. Um, for you, it could be, I am going to use my lunchtime at work. I am going to go out to my car, 
and sit there in my car and have devotions. Um, if you're a student in college, you might choose a free period and go to a specific cube in the library or a hidden location that no one knows about or a nook in a dorm room, someplace. You have a location, you have a time, and you have a plan of what you're going to do during that time. That is your process. That is your system. And that is what will enable you to achieve your goal every single day. So the final thing that I wanted to talk about that he discussed in his book is that one way to make sure your habit is actually done is to make that habit obvious. On page 82, he says, people often choose products not because of what they are, but because of where they are. If I walk into the kitchen and see a plate of cookies on the counter, I'll pick up half a dozen and start eating, even if I hadn't been thinking about them beforehand and didn't necessarily feel hungry, end quote. We've all been there, right? The plate of Christmas cookies that's been sitting on your counter for all of December. Um, I have this have I have this problem right now in my cupboard. My pantry has the junk food at eye level. I should move it down where I have to crouch down to get it, or up out of eyesight and put the healthy stuff right there in front of me. You know, the nuts instead of the chips. In the book, James explained an experiment that was done that showed this very well in a hospital cafeteria. The administrators there noted that the cafeteria consumption was pretty heavily leaning towards sodas instead of the healthy water. This is a hospital where the medical staff know better. So it's not a knowledge issue. It was something else. So what they did was they noted that the cash register's um, refrigerator case only had sodas in it. Additionally, there were more options for sodas in the room than there were water. I think water was in one basket and sodas were like three or four locations. So what they did was, of course, added water to the register's refrigerator, bottles of water there, and then they put a basket with bottled water at every single food station in the cafeteria. So there was a lot more water bottles there than there were sodas. They never sent out an email, a memo, a poster, or anything was said about drinking more water. It was just the physical fact that there were more waters in the cafeteria than there was soda now. And they were everywhere. And the results were, quote, over the next three months, the number of soda sales at the hospital dropped by 11.4%. Meanwhile, sales of bottled water increased by 25.8%, end quote. So that's a marketing ploy that I learned about in college. And it, all the major food brands use it. So if you go in the grocery store, you see the Coke and Pepsi products always get the end cap. And it's never any of the local or lesser known brands that get that. Because the eye level shelf, that is where you look at first. It's the end cap that you see and be like, oh, sure, yeah, I guess I will get that. 
So if it's obvious, you are more likely to take that product. You are more likely to do that action. And the Bible teaches this principle as well. You may be sitting there thinking, I don't remember that. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses is trying to convince the people of Israel to stay faithful to their God while he's gone, um, after after he's gone. And he spends the entire book telling them again everything that he wants them to remember, important things, important commands, things their God has done for them. And in chapter six, he sets out a pattern of how they're supposed to implement this don't forget to remember in their own daily lives. He says in verse five through nine, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And what is Moses' process for the Israelites to remember their God and to love him? He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses says, plaster the scriptures everywhere. Talk about it constantly. That is how you will make it obvious to yourself and remind yourself to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So what things do you need to change to make this habit that you want to do more obvious? Maybe if you're trying to study your Bible more, it is putting your Bible on the kitchen counter. So the first thing you do in the morning, you wake up, you go to the coffee pot, your Bible is sitting there. Um, Maybe it is wanting to exercise more, going out and taking a walk. So when you get up in the morning and you get dressed, get into your exercise clothes first thing, not your normal stuff. And then as soon as the kids are up and fed, you all go out of the house for a walk. I'm sure there's many more things that are popping into your head with some of these suggestions. Personally, as I said before, I am going to rearrange my pantry for my New Year's resolution and put the junk food out of reach and the chocolate out of the house so I won't even eat it. So I hope this episode was helpful for you. It is by no means everything James Clear had in his book. And there are many other principles you can get, biblical principles you can get from his book. But just to recap, in order to make a change, you need to become a new person. You can't fit a square peg into a round hole. You need to adopt a new identity. Second, it's the little bits of consistent effort are what produce the biggest change. If you want to lose weight, you need to be consistent for months and months and months and not give it a huge push just in one week. Third, you need to make a plan instead of just having a vague goal. And fourth, you need to make your habit obvious so that it's easy for you to remember and do it. 
Like I said, this episode is the start of a short series on some common news resolutions. So maybe one of yours is to read Borg. In that case, go check out James Clear's Atomic Habits. But to make sure you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes in this series, go and subscribe right now on your Apple Podcasts, on Amazon, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.